Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Welcome to this edition of The Policy Dispatch. I'm Sam Morgan, your host and guide through the exciting world of the energy transition. Today we're looking at a greenhouse gas, and it's not the one that generates all the major headlines. Methane is the greenhouse gas that often lives in the shadow of its more infamous cousin, carbon dioxide, but methane is a massive problem nonetheless. Terrible for the climate in a different way. It accelerates global warming, and is an issue that policymakers absolutely have to address if they are to succeed in limiting temperature rises. Thankfully, methane's role is finally being looked at. Governments are attracted by the fact that its impact on the climate does not last as long as CO2s, so policy fixes yield big results along a quicker time frame. The fact that methane is less directly linked to households and their lifestyle choices is also a positive for policymakers aiming to make a big splash. Global action is starting to take off and will feature heavily at COP28. The European Union heads to Dubai with an ace up its sleeve too. It comes in the form of a brand new law that will govern methane. The legislation is predicted to have a massive impact on oil and gas infrastructure leaks, a big part of the methane problem, and imports, which will have to abide by certain standards or face financial penalties. To get a better sense of where we stand on methane, and to find out whether this is an aspect of the climate crisis crusade where we can find a decent chunk of optimism, I turn to Flavia Solazzo, Senior Director for the EU's Energy Transition at the Environmental Defence Fund. Flavia was kind enough to go into detail about the EU's new law, how it will work, and whether it will have a global impact. Before we get into that discussion, just time for the Policy Dispatch quiz question. This week I'm asking you, agriculture, in particular cattle farming, is a big source of methane pollution. Cow burps and cow pats emit the gas in huge amounts. How much water, though, does a typical cow need to drink every day? Is it A, 1 litre, B, 10 litres, C, 50 litres, or D, 100 litres? Answer at the end of the show. Okay, Flavia, so if we could maybe just kick off with a little bit of the, the real simple basics, you know, for people who are listening that maybe aren't so familiar with this with this topic. Um, CO2, carbon dioxide is obviously the greenhouse gas that everyone knows about. It's the thing that's in the news constantly now. Um, but today we're talking about methane, also a greenhouse gas. What's the big deal when it comes to methane and the climate? Is it as serious as CO2? Is it a different thing altogether? What is What is this issue that we're talking about? Well, well, yes. So methane is responsible for around 30% of global warming. And the, the, the big deal about methane is that it's, it has over 80 times uh, the warming potential than CO2. So this means that it's 80 times more potent in trapping heat and especially in the short term. So, so I would say it's the second, well, I would say because of this, this is what it is. It's the second largest contributor to climate change. And it's responsible for half a degree of the current warming, or 
as uh, Secretary General of the United Nations has described it, uh, current global war- uh, boiling. So given this, deep reductions in methane emissions are critical right now to keep global climate goals within reach and avoiding also near-term climate impacts. So if we want to reduce methane emissions quickly in the near near term, this is the only way if uh, this is the only way we have to limit temperature rise and improving also air quality. Um, as you might know or, or not, methane emissions primarily come from three sectors, the fossil fuels, so oil, gas and coal, agriculture and waste. And the good news is actually that we have ready, readily available solutions to reduce methane emissions from all of three um, of these major emitting sectors. And in fact, if we use currently available technologies, we could cut methane emissions by at least 45% by 2030 which would be enough to avoid 0.3 of warming by the 2040s. So in particular, um, the fossil fuel consumption of the EU is very significant in this in, in, in this context. I mean, the, the thing that really kind of triggered interest in talking about this issue for this for this episode is the fact that the European Union does have a regulation now for the for the methane um it's been welcomed as you know a pretty big step in climate action um, one of the first times that methane has been regulated in this way by i guess anyone around the world really um what's your initial take on this regulation is is it that good step forward in climate action to address the you know the challenge that you you just mentioned well, the, the, the agreement that the EU has currently is really, really a big deal. It's, it's a big deal for Europe, but, but I would say also globally because the, the, the fossil fuel, uh, industry and, and the energy sector is, 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 is where we can have the quickest wins. And, uh, the EU has set finally and, and for the first time, uh, as, as you were saying, binding standards that will eliminate routine venting and flaring of natural gas, but also curb leaks across the whole oil and gas sector. And what it will also do, it it will have an impact that would, will also reach far beyond Europe. And that's because, uh, yeah, the EU imports most of its natural gas um, and oil. And if we look at natural gas alone, the so-called methane footprint is imported to be up to eight times larger than the domestic emissions alone. And and so, yeah, as I was saying, as the top gas importer through this new regulation, the, the EU is leveraging its influence to drive also global reductions. Mm-hmm. Um, and just one last point, this regulation that is sometimes voluntarily or involuntarily underrated, I think is a potential game changer for climate action. And this will invite and uh, <laughs> push also other major economies to, to follow. It's interesting that point because it's something that comes up quite often in in journalism is that when you're talking to people who do have you know expertise and interest in climate, it is quite often these issues that aren't particularly well known or followed or written about in headlines where a you can get a lot of uh, climate wins and progress made through these kind of regulations, but also the the lack of public scrutiny or you know the potential for making it another culture war. Um, means that these things can actually make a big, con- you know, contribution to climate change. Um, I mean, you mentioned the venting and flaring issue. I mean, it's one of the most, um, I guess, visual aspects of this. You you see it on the news all the time. The big chimney stacks with flames coming out the top. Um, maybe you could just give us a bit more detail about that, so that there will be a ban on this, or what does this regulation say about venting and flaring? 
Yeah. So, well, it's, uh, you were saying it's very visual and actually <laughs> it's, I don't know if you've seen, we had, uh, we, we had a campaign last year with billboards all around Brussels that actually had the, 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 the yeah, the, the flare stack as a symbol. So yes, it is, it is great news that the, the agreement will largely outlaw routine flaring and venting of natural gas by 2027 is the, is the deadline. And um, to give listeners context, um, flaring and venting accounts to about 15% of methane emissions from uh, the oil and gas globally. And this isn't just statistics. Um, it's a reflection of methane that is being either burned or released directly into the atmosphere every second of every day deliberately. So the new EU regulation is sending a clear signal that this status quo of flaring and venting is no longer accept acceptable. Um, if I draw on, a, on an example of something that EDF has been involved in, um, so we went to Romania um, for a study and deployed a range of instruments in a key production region, and we tried to verify the magnitude of methane emissions that were reported in the national inventory. Our focus was on identifying and controlling the, the primary sources. So the insights from this from this measurement study have shown, and this is quite uh, scary, <laughs> I would say, that emissions were between two and three times higher than what was reported in the national inventories. So to, to give you to give you to give you a number, uh, the leaks that that have been that have been seen amount to ninety millions. Of euros annually and would be enough to sustain 1 million households for one year. So imagine if or when routine venting flaring would be banned and this kind of monitoring would be done constantly along the whole value chain. What benefits we would have, both in terms of environmental impact, of course, but also in terms of operational costs and, and, and revenues. Um, of course, some flaring for safety reasons may still be necessary, but this policy tackles um, a rel relatively low cost and, and rapidly uh, manner to reduce emissions. And at the same time, time it also sets a pre precedent, as I was saying, for other major economies that, that can follow. Um, <laughs> and, and I'd like to add that I think it's worth saying that regardless of policy mandates, so in, in the EU we have it, in other regions uh, there are still no, no legislations, but the technologies to capture this gas that would in, in otherwise uh, be vented or flared actually exists. And so you could uh, capture this gas and use it productively rather than polluting the atmosphere. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah, and as I was saying, if you would be doing this, uh, you would have more usable energy. You would enhance the energy security, but also save money for companies and households in the long run. So it's a, it's a sort of win-win. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, the latest uh, methane tracker from the International Energy Agency. It reinforces and highlights that oil and gas methane emissions are uh, the primary opportunity for immediate climate action. And they also show that even with the soaring prices of 2022, uh, an estimated of 80% of emission reductions could be implemented by putting in place measure, measures that uh, would not make companies incur in uh, in in any costs. So uh, they would incur in net costs. So I think this is quite quite crucial and quite 
quite relevant. That's, that's a really striking part of this entire issue is that the technology exists and it will be cheaper for these companies involved to actually deploy it. I mean, in terms of, um, you mentioned how this is going to impact imports of oil and gas into the European Union. Is it just the imports of oil and gas? I mean, you mentioned before that um, other sources of methane are agriculture and waste. Will those sectors also be impacted in terms of you know imported goods, or is this still something that the regulation doesn't cover yet, or it's not clear? Or well, the the regulation focuses on 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 the energy sector, and it focuses on the energy mm-hmm. sector because it's where you can have you can have quick wins, and you can. It's 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 really the technology exists. Uh, sometimes it's just about uh, closing a valve, just doing the right monitoring, leak detection, and and then and, and then the repair. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, the EU is 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 focusing on 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 the oil and gas imports mostly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and what it is saying is, okay, uh, we are not only tidying up our our own backyard, but it's it's saying to the to the to the importers or exporters <laughs> into the EU. If you yes. want to play ball in our court, you've got to play by our rules. Mm-hmm. Could, could you say then that this regulation is a bit of a complement to the carbon border adjustment mechanism, the CBAM, which covers you know steel and iron and aluminium, where these imports will have to respect certain environmental standards, and now this is kind of a you know a bolt on of sorts for oil and gas. Where you know, if you don't respect um, whatever the standards will be for this regulation, you will have to pay extra costs that will impact your business case, etc. Do you see those two things as kind of working in harmony? Well, I, I, I'd say absolutely. Um, and 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 to give you a little background, the EU methane regulation is is the effort to, uh, as we were saying, to 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 target and control methane emissions, particularly from the energy sector. And so it, it includes oil, gas and coal um, industries. And it indeed is a complement to the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is more focused on, on, on carbon um, emissions from the imported goods. So what, what I would say is that both regulations are, well, they are both part of the EU's Fit for 55 package, which has the ultimate goal of achieving climate neutrality by 2050. They both share a common framework that includes robust monitoring and reporting requirements to ensure transparency and accountability. And for instance, the methane regulation requires the energy sector to actively measure, report and verify emissions, as well as to take concrete steps like, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, repairing leaks and reducing, reducing flaring and banning venting. No? So there is a synergy here, particularly in how both policies aim to influence the behavior and the practices beyond the EU's borders. So with CBAM, there is a final incentive, as you were saying, to encourage cleaner production practices globally, and it imposes a cost on imports that is based on their carbon content. The methane regulation extends its its influence by setting standards for methane emissions that external suppliers must meet. And so they're both operating with uh, a phased approach in their implementation. So the agreed methane regulation is setting clear deadlines for monitoring, reporting, and verification on imports. Mm -hmm. Um, They're setting a a deadline by 2027. And then they set maximum methane intensity values by 2030. 
while the CBAM initially is focusing on reporting requirements, and then it will move into a financial obligation. So I, I think in mm-hmm. essence, while CBAM um, and the methane regulation have different targets, they're in- interconnected in the approach of reducing emissions. And they both kind of enforce a level of discipline on the market that goes beyond the voluntary measures that, uh, for example, of, uh, on, on methane uh, industry has, mm-hmm. has already agreed to. Mm-hmm. You, you just mentioned the, the timeline for the methane regulation. Um, what's your take on that timeline? Do you think that it's robust enough? Does it give too much time for these companies to, I mean, like you already said, they, they have the technology and the well financial incentive to do this. So shouldn't it have been sort of a more you know, strict timeline? <laughs> well, uh, indeed, but at the same time, um, I don't know if you or some of your listeners have followed the negotiations. Uh, I, I think it could have ended much worse. So, so mm. the fact that we actually will have imports tackled by the regulation is is a big deal. I mean, I mean, you know, mm. keeping the status quo is something that is, uh, yeah, that 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 is always very attractive. <laughs> so, so the fact that. Yeah, that, that this regulation actually managed to 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 challenge this, even if the timeline is is not optimal, I think is is mm-hmm. a good win. It's a good thing. You mentioned that you know the penalties for companies or countries or whoever that breach this regulation when it's in in force. Um, are the penalties robust enough to actually form you know a decent stick? You know, we we talk about this quite a lot in EU policymaking, I guess, where sometimes the, you know, the, the punishment isn't, isn't that big a deal really. And, and countries just go ahead and, and breach it anyway. Um, is, is this robust enough to make a difference in that case? Do you think? Well, the, the, the short answer, uh, the short answer is we will need to see. Um, mm. the, the long answer is it, it, as you're saying, it's a pivotal issue. Um, because it's it's one thing having rules on the books, and it's quite another thing to to see them effectively shape shape behavior. From what we've mm-hmm. seen, uh, as you were saying, we've seen a bit of a disconnect happening there. Uh, some companies and maybe even some countries seem to be weighing the fines as just another cost of doing business, which, yeah, frankly, is is not the deterrent that it's meant to be. So, are, are the penalties? sufficient i think the question is is more how do we make the penalties sufficient so i, I think they need to be meaningful enough to get everyone's attentions mm-hmm. uh, attention and to make the cost of non-compliance sting more than the investment in the compliance would do i, I think for the for the oil and gas sector this is quite easy because as the uh, iea uh, also also mentions the, the most of these measures can be can be done at no net cost so so yeah that's that's already one thing and then there is another issue which is bound to enforcement so if you if you don't have a robust system to catch and penalize the offenders the rules might as well be suggestions so mm-hmm. if a penalty isn't pushing a company to change its way it's, it's not doing its job so mm-hmm. I would say I would say that, that also with this regulation, if this is if, if this is going to be the case, then uh, the EU will need to step back and reassess the situation quite quickly to make sure that uh, 
at the end of the day, the goal, which is cutting down those emissions, is, is going to be met. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you, and maybe your colleagues as well, that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. I guess maybe that's encouraging then that uh, recently we've seen quite a lot of headlines in the news, uh, thanks to actually groups like yours, where you know the use of drone technology and other sort of monitoring um, instruments has revealed how you know, companies are underreporting or not bothering to report at all leaks and things like that. So pressure is on, you know, the, the European Union doesn't have to be the only one exerting pressure. There is obviously civil society and maybe even rival companies pointing the finger at, um, you know, laggards and things. So we're just about a week out from COP28 when we're recording this, Flavia. How important is it that the EU will go to this, you know, Landmark Climate Summit is being called the biggest one since 2015 when the Paris Agreement was signed. Um, yeah, how important is it that the EU can go there and show other countries, look, we have this pretty big deal, uh, methane legislation in place. This is something that maybe you should do as well. Um, do you see it as a real powerful you know, piece of climate diplomacy fuel for the EU? Well, the... The, the EU agreeing on this, on this regulation is, is, is a landmark. So, uh, what the EU has done is it has put methane mitigation front and center on the global agenda. Um, it has leveraged the fact that it's the world's biggest importer of natural gas. And in mandating that producers exporting into, into the block strengthen standard, it shows that climate responsibility extends beyond its borders, as I've said also before. So, Imagine the collective impact if other large importers of, of fossil fuels would follow the EU steps. Um, this challenges, I think, other major emitters to step up and, and commit to real, to real action. The EU has given them something powerful now to, to, get, to get behind by presenting ambitious and, and workable methane policies that are ready for, replica for replication. And I think it's worth highlighting um, something that a colleague of mine, Maria Olszak, uh, uh, found out in a study that she, that she did, uh, which showed that basically only 13% um, of, of, of emitters are actually covered by methane mitigation policies. So you can see that the potential of the EU presenting this uh, at COP is, is, is huge. Um, at, at Environmental Defense Fund, we see this as a real demonstration of leadership against some very, very strong opposition, which perhaps a year or so ago might have carried some more weight. But now the fact that this regulation exists shows that this time can be seen as almost over. I want to be optimistic mm -hmm. here. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it can have a ripple effect on energy markets and, and could be transformative in that, in, in that sense, because the regulation will also accelerate innovation and investment in technologies that, that will, as, as, as you were saying, help to detect, measure and mit mitigate methane. And, and this will help 
uh, a faster transition to a more uh, sustainable and secure energy system. Um, Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think we need to look at this as a movement into a new era of cooperation and collaboration. And I think, and I hope many will agree that this is the only, the only way, way forward. And so the, the role of the EU regulation, but also of technology, as we were saying before, is that it's, it can enable this collaboration and, and, and foster and foster its, uh, yeah, happening faster. Mm-hmm. Oh, whenever we we talk about anything global and climate, it's normally the EU, China, and the United States that get compared to one another. Um, that's what the EU is doing on methane. Um, I understand that China came out with some sort of methane strategy recently. How does that compare? And is the US doing anything that could also be considered to be a bit of that optimism that you just mentioned? Or, or do both of them also need to really set up their game and match what the EU is doing, even exceed it if possible? Well, as, as, as you might know, in 2021, the EU and, and the US launched the Global Methane Pledge um, that has been signed by over 150, 150 countries that have committed to reducing their methane emissions by 30% by 2030 when you compare it to uh, the levels of 2020. So while the EU has been negotiating the methane regulations, the US uh, Environmental Protection Agency um, as well as some uh, states have proposed rules to tackle emissions via leak detection and repair, also flaring and venting, and setting equipment technology standards. So this is this is something that actually is quite uh, is quite reassuring. Also, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, provides over one and a half billions to reinforce the EPA methane programs and is specifically earmarking for uh, marginal well mitigation and also um, emissions monitoring and and reporting. There is also um, a steadily rising methane fee that has been uh, set up that reaches uh, $1,500 by 2026 that should also motivate Mm -hmm. action. So the levers are there through legislation and through regulation, and, and they show that things need to work to work hand in hand. You mentioned China. Well, China has presented uh, a methane uh, action plan that does indeed signal that there is a waking up to the challenge or there is taking action for the challenge. And it definitely deserves credit. It's so far... uh, doesn't actually detail uh, numerical targets. Um, so so this is a bit, it's a bit ambivalent. It's a great news because they haven't signed the Global Methane Pledge and they haven't committed until now, but there is no doubt that uh, this this plan will, will actually, I mean, actually sets, uh, sets a sign that, that China is starting to take the, the, the topic seriously. And no doubt many eyes will be on China also heading to COP to see uh, if they will pledge something that is, that is, that is more tangible. Um, efforts are also ongoing on international level. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this last week. The EU, the US and other countries, including Japan, Korea, Brazil, Australia, Canada, Colombia, but also some uh, member states of the EU like France, Germany and Italy, 
have announced their ongoing work to develop a framework that provides comparable and reliable information for all natural gas market participants. And this is an attempt to develop and agree on common measurements and monitoring and reporting and verification standards that can be used along supply chains uh, that are global. So that's mm-hmm. also, I think, once it will be agreed and once they will have developed um, those those standards will also be a game changer. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, the Global Methane Pledge. Uh, China's um, lack of membership of it was a bit of a glaring omission, I guess. It's been in place for a couple of years. Do you think that it really has had a you know, ratcheting effect that has fed into the conversation about methane over the last couple of years? Do you think that the success of the, the EU regulation is in part be- because of that global effort? I mean, I, I know that a lot of, you know, EU domestic policies are often limited by the fact that people say, oh, nobody else is doing anything. Why should we do something? Do you think the fact that there was this international effort, even if it was, you know, voluntary or, or not legally binding or anything like that did have a positive impact on on, on the EU's efforts? Well, the, the EU pushed a lot for it. Uh, and, and the mm-hmm. EU pushed a lot for it because the problem is so, so important. And because methane mm-hmm. is one of the of the only ways we have to actually slow global warming in the window of opportunity that we have. So it is definitely something that the Green Deal pushed and then the Global Methane Pledge somehow somehow pushed as well. Um, but it's also that we have all noticed uh, since since the pledge and since the EU presented its uh, methane strategy, I mean, uh, climate change effects also in Europe have been on the news every other day, and and it's 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 almost not the news anymore. So so I think this also contributes to the um, yeah to 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 really making making the point. And I think it might be that because of all of this, we are in a moment where you sense the scales might just start to tip in favor of meaningful climate action and and uh, yeah so i think i think uh, what the eu has done i think heading into cop this might be a help to yeah make it make sure that it's what we are offering is not just another piece of legislation tabled into the discussion but that it can be a concrete step where commitments come with accountability. And, and this is the mm-hmm. part that in the Global Methane ple- Pledge is is still missing. It's voluntary, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, just maybe just to close off the, the discussion, um, this is obviously not the end of the road for EU uh, climate policy making. Where is the next sort of step and milestones for, for methane? Is there any other legislation that is coming or not finalized yet that will impact this? Um, does the regulation, when will it be revised? Will it be revised at some point? You know, what, what's the next big fight that you're, you're looking forward to? Well, I, I would, I would say this is only the, the, the starting line because further ambition, targets, timelines, enforcement will still require, um, critical action from policymakers, but also from, from energy, from energy firms. 
I think in independently from 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 what is happening on on the legislative side, what still needs to happen is is also linked to to to, to changing to change changing practices. So so we've seen until now that voluntary action has been limited and the pace has been has been has been quite slow. Um, this information from the International Energy Energy Agency, which I talked about earlier, shows that firms must now aggressively self-regulate and update their operational practices to conduct those comprehensive leak detection and repair uh, protocols. We've seen that it's economically viable, it curbs waste, it enhances energy security, and it delivers the, the climate gains that we're looking for. And, and this is where I think for the future, what is important is, mm. is the, the, the tech. So there is huge potential for innovation um, that will be enabled by pol- policy and driven by the energy sector to monitor, measure, and track. So there will not be anymore the excuse of, yeah, we're working on it uh, because technology is unlocking a new era of transparency. And uh, what it reveals about fugitive methane emissions is that it has somehow killed the, so- the social license to, to self-regulate. So industry no longer polices itself. So this has to be the moment for the fossil fuel industry where they redirect its res- their resources and expertise towards detecting and fixing leaks and limiting venting and flaring across the production of the supply chain worldwide. Um, which are all actions that can pay for themselves, as we were saying, but that also prevent w- prevent waste and a lot of inefficiency. Um, there are global initiatives that will grow. Uh, there is, for example, IMEO, the International Methane Emissions Observatory by the, the UN Environmental Programs that drive diagnostics on where intervention is most lacking and provide insights across regions. And still looking forward, let, let me give you an example of something that we are doing at Environmental Defense Fund and which we're very excited about. We will launch <laughs> a, a satellite called MethaneSat early next year, which is going to revolutionize how we interact with data. Um, I'd say turning the invisible emissions into visible insights and this particular satellite is, I'd say, a quantum leap forward because it's pinpointing even very, very small emissions with high resolution and precision and makes us focus wow. on areas that are as small as uh, one square kilometer. And it's, it's, it's interesting because there, there are other, other satellites out there. They, 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 do, they do help, but... This one will uh, sweep Earth around 15 times a day, and it will um, it will be it will allow us to constantly monitor 80 to 90 percent of oil and gas production regions in the world. So this type of pre- precision, I think, is is hugely helpful for the oil and gas he- uh, sector to better manage and mitigate their own environmental impact, but also for regulators, uh, as you were saying, to inform their regulatory requirements. So. Um, in, for example, in places where you might not expect it, you will be able to see, uh, to see leaks and, and to repair them. Just if I still have time for one little example, uh, a year ago or so, we did, um, 
uh, another study, uh, I mentioned Romania, but we also did a study in uh, in different cities. And for example, in Hamburg, uh, in Germany, we worked together with the Technical University of Munich and we used uh, advanced monitoring technologies to to again uh, check whether the, the the inventories were corresponding to to what we were seeing, and and we discovered that there were underestimated sources, such as an oil refinery that was contributing to the city's emissions, and th- the source was unknown. What was fo- what we found out was that uh, the refinery would have been continued to emitting continuously for a longer time without without this monitoring campaign. Uh, we are we are talking about around two hundred liters per minute here. So. So, so I think the new frontier and what, what will happen in the next years will be that even when, where there is no legislative framework in place, the latest methane hunting te- technology can expose emissions and so can, uh, foster action. And so I, I'm very helpful that about where this is all going. And, and I think that, yeah, in this case, uh, at least technology, but also in, in many other cases, actually mm-hmm. technology is uh, an answer and and a help for policymakers. But also methane hunting technology, I like that. Lastly, that's, for uh, every one of us, that's great. No, I mean it seems like another you know another problem that will only be solved when we have good data, good verifying of that data. Um, and then we can, you know, work wonders with legislation and pledges and all those sort of thing. Um, Flavio, I'd really like to thank you for today's discussion. It's been really interesting to to actually delve into how, you know, positive steps can be made in climate action. It isn't all doom and gloom. There are silver linings to a lot of things and also a pretty big deal methane that sometimes flies under the radar is being addressed and steps are being made. So really thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Methane then is a dangerous threat to the climate, but one which we can neutralise rather easily in some cases. Uh, Grounds for optimism, but probably best that we keep giving it the attention it deserves. Uh, Just as a side note, during the discussion with Flavia, I couldn't help but think about the Montreal Protocol and how the ozone layer was successfully protected. Slashing methane emissions feels like something that could yield the same type of success that that landmark decision managed to secure. Time now for the answer to the quiz question. On the topic of methane emissions and the agricultural sector, I asked you how much a typical cow drinks every day. 1, 10, 50 or 100 litres? The correct answer is 100 litres. About an entire bathtub of water every day. Be thankful I asked you how much goes in one end of a cow rather than how much comes out the other. That's it for this episode of The Policy Dispatch. I'll be back soon with another look at the fascinating world of the energy transition.